Welcome to Lost in the Movies. You are listening to my Sight and Sound mini-series, where I cover the films that I'd never uh, talked about before in any medium, uh, from like the most highly ranked on Sight and Sound list from 2022 to, uh, you know, well, basically the top five, let's say. So the first one is the number one film on the Sight and Sound list, Jean Dielman, 23 Quai de Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. Uh, this is a film that leapt to the top of this list. So I'm going to give a little of the history of how it appeared. Um, the Sight and Sound list has been around since 1952 from Sight and Sound magazine. They polled critics and asked what they thought the greatest films were of all time. And I think since the beginning, what they've done is if you include the film on the ballot, which isn't ranked, so you, you choose 10 films on a ballot and the ones with the most votes, you know, top the list but if if a film has the same amount of votes and again that's just appearance on the list because they're not weighing rankings or anything like that then uh you know it, there's a tie so there were a lot of ties throughout this period but 1952 62 72 obviously Jean Dielman hadn't come out yet it's a film from 1975 and then uh in 1982 the only record of like who voted for what that I was able to find or not so much who, but how many people voted for what um, only recorded two votes or more. So if, if John Dalman did get a vote in uh 20 or sorry, 1982, then it, it would have been, I think two at the most. And maybe it didn't receive any. We don't know. In 1992, though, we do see that it was in a 35-way tie. Again, you know, they didn't have that many critics voting at this time. So if enough people chose it, in this case, you know, if they if three different uh, critics put it on their list, it was tied with 35 other films. So it did receive three votes, including Jay Hoberman, the Village Voice critic, and Laura Mulvey, who would ultimately write a piece on the film when it was chosen as number one in, in 2022. And I don't know who the third voter was. I, I was able to, you know, find these various lists online where they would show who voted for what, but they were sort of incomplete. So this was ranked number 91 on the list. Um, just cause there were, you know, so many films tied for, uh, you know, with four votes and five votes and so forth. So it was, uh, I guess in the top 100 for 92, but uh, they didn't really uh, advertise that at the time. They only really focused on the top 10. I think it was only in 2012 when they started to show a broader list and what was beyond the top 10. In 2002, though, Jean Dielman was uh, in a 27-way tie for uh, number 62 on the critics list. And I should note for 92 and 2002, there were directors lists as well, but no directors voted for Jean Dielman. So still kind of low on there, but working its way up, I guess you could say, is still uh, enmeshed with a whole bunch of other films, and it only received four votes in 2002. Now, 2012, they expanded the voter pool quite a bit, and that was the year that there was a three-way tie for number 36 on the critics list. So at this point, it's it's starting to make its presence known. It's got It got 34 votes, so again hugely expanded voter pool um even with 30 more votes you know uh what is that four times 32 or whatever it's like more than eight times as many votes in 2012 um it would still wouldn't crack the top 30 because you know there were just so many more voters 
But then in 2022, that's when the fascinating thing happened. So first of all, it made the director's list for the first time. It hadn't appeared on the director's list at all in 2012. And in 2022, it popped up at number four. So there were 46 directors. And again, just as 2012 was a big expansion of the voter pool, 2022 was an even huger expansion of the voter pool beyond that. So at this point, you know, so many directors voting, 46 of them included this film on their ballot, which uh, brought it up to number four. And then on the critics list, of course, it reached number one. This was kind of shocking, but also not totally. I mean, it was almost the kind of thing where it's not surprising, but shocking, which is not something you usually hear. But uh, it was so out of the norm for the history of the sight and sound film list. But uh, I think people had kind of seen it coming because they'd noted the general cultural shifts. I think particularly the fact that it's a feminist film, the first film to top the sight and sound list that's directed by a woman. So, you know, there was a sense in which, okay, it's it's time has come. And in 2022, 195 critics voted for it. So again, keep in mind, massive, massive expansion of who they were polling for this. I think 20, 30 years ago, it was only major critics for these huge national publications, you know, nationally circulated publications. And now it's like loads and loads of online critics, people who have a blog, people who have a YouTube channel, people who maybe only have a social media presence. Um, There were all kinds of people included in this. Um, I, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating somewhat. Maybe they had to have published somewhere. But when you consider all the online publications that are out there, that's you know not necessarily uh, a super high bar to uh, to jump. So there were just a ton of people surveyed. Even so, even with all that in mind, just thinking that this film got four votes 20 years ago and now it has 195, fascinating. So anyways, I have a, fa- a really interesting history with this film that I'm going to discuss with my guest for this episode. This is one of the longest, actually, no, this is by far the longest Lost in the Movies episode so far. Um, The previous longest one was also a conversation with Andrew Cook on Southland Tales. That was, I think, close to an hour. Then there was some supplemental stuff. This is almost two hours. This is with Ashley Brandt. She's the host of Twin Peaks Peaks. Uh, I've got links below where you can find her on Letterboxd, Serialized, and Instagram, And uh, we had a great conversation about this film. It was really her idea to do this because I was kind of on the fence about whether or not to do my sight and sound series. And when I mentioned that I was going to cover films I hadn't seen before and she asked if Sean Dielman was on there, she was really excited to discuss this. So this was a a great spur for this discussion. We had a great discussion as a result. So uh, we'll get into that in a moment. One brief note, uh, just an update since last week. Um, my recent work includes a, uh, Patreon podcast episode or part of an episode. I think I might've mentioned this on the previous one thinking it'd be out by then, but it wasn't, but it is out now. And it's uh, episode 100, um, the intro and the listener feedback part of that, um, for the dollar a month patrons and the topics include lynch and frost tourism twin peaks characters diane bob richard horn generational viewing habits innocence and corruption in twin peaks and car accidents as metaphors and lynch work so there you go you can listen to that if you want to deep dive into what people both listening to the podcast and also watching me on youtube and even on reading my stuff on the site i had to say and what i had to say in response so 
You can check that out. Now for the discussion with Ashley Brandt on the number one film of all time, according to Sight and Sound in 2022, Jean Dielman, 23 Quai de Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. In this discussion of Jean Dielman, we do talk about the end of the film, fair warning. Also, randomly, I spoil, there will be blood, so good to know going in. I'm here with Ashley Brandt, who was actually recently a guest on Twin Peaks Conversations with Matt Olson, her co-host of the Twin Peaks Peaks podcast. And while we were there, we kind of very uh, randomly somehow began. I, I think she's she brought up the film Stalker, and that brought to mind for me the sight and sound list, which I was considering covering on my podcast, uh, the recent one, covering the films that I hadn't covered before on my site that were in that like top 20 or so that the critics and directors lists uh, came out with. So the sight and sound film, uh, you know, I've described it in the intro or the sight and sound film list rather. I've described it already in the intro to this podcast, so I won't get into it too much more here, but this film was number one on the critics list and pretty high on the directors as well. I think number two, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's four. Or four. Okay. So in the top five, but not not quite, but the, the fact that it became number one on the critics list made quite a splash. So I brought up the list and uh, Ashley brought up Jean Dielman. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's definitely a film I would plan on discussing because I hadn't talked about it before on my site. And it, the circumstances are actually even stranger than that now that I think about it, because I kind of looked back and and was trying to figure out when I saw this film. I knew that I had seen it at some point because this was a kind of a holy grail film for me at one point. In 2008, I had a, uh, I made a list on my site. This was like the early days of uh, the blogosphere when, um, you know, there was a blogosphere, first of all. <laughs> and when uh, memes meant like a, an idea that kind of circulates rather than like a image with text like it does now. So there was this meme that was circulating that was like name 12 uh, films that you want to see that you've like, uh, you know, never seen before films that would be and actually I think this was one that I came up with it was like, you know, what are, what are your holy grail films the ones that like you've that oftentimes maybe aren't available on DVD at the time or something like that. And this was right in that list for me this was something that was hard to see at that time that I knew I wanted to see. And then I, you know, came out on Criterion, I think around uh, the mid, like 2009, 2010 or so. And uh, so I knew I'd seen it somewhere in there, but I couldn't really remember the film. The more I thought about it, the more I started to wonder, I'm like, have I actually seen this? Like, did I somehow, you know, after anticipating it and everything when it came out on Criterion, I remembered watching News from Home which is, a, I think, a Chantal Ackerman's film from like the next year or something. It's, it's very soon after this that she made that, where she reads the letters that her mother wrote and the camera's kind of showing, uh, I think, scenes uh, or, or sort of like uh, 
presenting her New York apartment and and kind of juxtaposing the space with the the letters. It's been a while since I saw it, so I might be getting it slightly wrong. So I remembered that film pretty well. Uh, and I was thinking, why can't I remember more of like Jean Dielman? Like I remember certain sequences that I knew I'd seen. And so it went on and I was, I was wondering, I was almost like embarrassed. I'm like, have I not seen this film that's now considered like, you know, the greatest film of all time, according to the sight and sound. So I rented the uh, Blu-ray and uh, I started watching it. And I would say probably around the point where the sun comes into it. And I'm going to let Ashley describe the film uh, in a little more detail in a second. I realized I had never seen this movie before. <laughs> I'd never actually watched it. Um, it. It had been on that like kind of, uh, you know, oh, this is one I'm going to watch as soon as it's available. And then somehow it just slipped through the cracks. So uh, it, that was fascinating to me. And I was kind of riveted the whole time through discovering this film that was like familiar to me in theory, but not in its like tangible, actual, you know, moment to moment texture. Um, so I love that. It's like when you have a dream where you go someplace that you're familiar with and you discover like a new, you know, like it's a new room in a house or, you know, something hidden behind something else. It was kind of like that for me. So I actually kind of loved that fact. Now, Ashley, I know you've said you've seen the film a couple times before and uh, one time on the big screen that was particularly noteworthy for you. Uh, so I guess, could you describe that for the listeners? Yeah, I saw it for the first time. I want to say it was like late 2020. It had been on my list for a while. And I will admit, I did have a few false starts where I sort of started the film kind of like too late into the night. I just kind of like wasn't in the right headspace uh, to sit with the film because it is very, very hypnotic. Um, but once I was able to uh, watch it and devote my full attention, I did really enjoy it. Um, I think that the original reading that I came away with, again, very like focused on Delphine Sayrig's performance. Um, a lot of rage. Um, I actually, I was, I was talking to my friend who ended up watching it shortly after me and I, I saw it and I, I think this is still true to a certain extent as an inverse of sorts to Barry Lyndon, um, which is an interesting film where you have this sort of like fantastical, epic, historical set dressings and story unfolding around this sort of like void of a main character Whereas in Jean Dielman, it's it's this inner life unfolding in this sort of like opaque manner in this very unassuming setting in this very unassuming way. And the second time that I watched it, um, I saw it at the Academy Theater here in um, L.A., which is honestly one of L.A.'s best kept secrets. If you want to see like a repertory showing, I really recommend the Academy Theater. And it was on film, which was gorgeous. Um, but I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. You might think like going in to watch this the second time, it would be duller in some way, but it, it it was not at all for me because I was looking for those little cracks in her routine. Um, and I, I was enthralled. I wasn't counting the minutes at all. And I think that the sense that I got the second time was more about um, almost an awakening of sorts out of this routine and like waking up into dissatisfaction. Um, I think my reading of Jean Dielman as a character shifted quite a bit. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that one is more accurate than the other, but I think that's the the magic of the performance at the heart of the film. It sounds really simple, uh, 
in and it is formally very simple but it um it is also considered you know a very challenging viewing experience and it's definitely one of the greatest films of all time in terms of craftsmanship i don't i don't think you can really debate that point but the conceit is basically um this woman jean dealman is um a widower um, and we're looking at her routine over the course of three days as she um, goes about both her homemaking duties and her sex work, which is not really shown on screen. It's very much implied for most of the film. And it's a lot about rhythm and establishing the rhythm of her life, which is very well-timed. It's very well-regimented. Um, and it takes place over these really long still shots uh, throughout her apartment for the most part. And about halfway through the film, little things start going wrong. Um, and it's sort of cascading failures uh, leading up to this sort of like inexplicable boiling point where Jean Dielman stabs her client uh, in the throat, presumably kills him. And it's one of the greatest performances of all time by Delphine Seyrig. Um, there's no voiceover, there's no monologue. There is, the most dialogue is between Jean Dielman and her son who comes home from school at night and is a bit of a weirdo. Um, but it is this incredibly masterful performance that uses so little to build to this break of sorts in this woman's life and it's sort of like mythical because of its the film itself is sort of taken on this this ethos this mythos about um how quote-unquote purposefully boring it is um which is the stance that i disagree with but it is sort of how a lot of people enter the film yeah that's a good point i i actually didn't really find it boring at all and uh in a couple ways i mean first of all and this is something i thought or i was at least hoping for going in um you know again realizing i hadn't seen it before it was sort of an open uh open question but uh, you know i i had a suspicion that a lot of the sort of infamous shots themselves of her cooking moving around the kitchen doing tasks around the house walking you know just the sort of mundane everyday tasks would be infused with a sort of fascination, both through the filming and the performance, um, but also just, I mean, in the sense that I think watching someone do ordinary things can be fascinating, even in, in life, you know? Um, there's sort of an idea that these are the boring bits that Hitchcock talks about cutting out of a film, but, uh, it, you know, I, I thought it probably wouldn't necessarily play that way, but it also, you know, wasn't boring, quote unquote, in another way that I hadn't suspected. So I mentioned before that uh, I was kind of surprised to see, you know, when the sun came into it, that was when I realized I hadn't seen it because I knew I would remember that because it was so different from, you know, my understanding. I thought the film was basically just um, her routines for about three hours. And I knew that she would kill a, a, a John in the end of the film. And I thought that was kind of that it was sort of pared down to that, but in a weird way, it was more eventful than I expected. Like all the stuff with the son, the reading of the letter from her sister from Canada, 
Um, they even go outside and she runs some errands outside and stuff. So it was, it's funny, you know, in a weird perverse way, um, I almost went in expecting, uh, you know, less than, uh, than I got. So, uh, so in that way, it actually kind of surprised me with how much was in the film in terms of like drama and interaction and stuff like that. So, so I found that fascinating as well. I love the Barry Lyndon comparison too. Um, it actually makes me think of a couple things. It opens up a, a few different things we can explore, but, uh, I think I want to save the question of sort of, um, Sean Dielman as a character, uh, for a few minutes and actually, uh, mention something else that kind of comes to mind when you bring that up, which is in Barry Lyndon and John D. Elman in very different ways, the kind of gap between the narrator, so to speak, I mean, a literal narrator in Barry Lyndon's case, um, in, in, uh, uh, you know, in, in John D. Elman, more of like a sort of invisible one, uh, but a gap between the narrator and the uh, protagonist that kind of complicates the viewer's relationship to that protagonist. Um, again, in Barry Lyndon, it's it's partly that actual, very ironic narrator who I think a lot of people have pointed out is not necessarily reliable in terms of the conclusions they draw, and it sometimes seems even at odds with uh, what we're presented with on screen. But also, you know, there's a, you know, Kubrick's kind of approach is distance at times, um, it varied, I think, with with more intimacy in other parts. Uh, that that also kind of filters and uh, gives us a sense that maybe, you know, this character is uh, unapproachable in some way that they aren't necessarily. And then I think you you articulated that quite well with Sean Dielman as well, how on the second viewing, you kind of felt more um, in tune with the character in a way that maybe you didn't in the in the first case. Would you say that's, I mean, that, that, that's kind of what I got from what you were saying there, but uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think that like from the first viewing, the scene that really like um, molded my perception of Jean Dielman as a character is the second scene with the baby. Uh, when she's mm. watching her neighbor's baby, the first time we see this, she's sort of, she's very hands off with the baby. Um and that second time, you know, she's trying to interact with the child. She's trying to soothe the child um, amidst all these other kind of things in her life that are falling apart. And the baby sort of, you know, uh, crying and it felt like a rejection of her in a way. And I think I interpreted that as um, a reading of her inherent character um a reaction to her coldness almost which we'd been seeing throughout the film and this time around the second time around I, I think I felt a lot of um empathy for Jean Dielman um in the sense that she's sort of waking up to this very lonely isolated life her son is um you know seems to be motivating a lot of her behavior she really like um uh, her schedule really like revolves around him and they have no intimacy and she seems to have no intimacy with with anyone and so when she kind of failed to connect with the baby and obviously mm -hmm. babies cry for all sorts of reasons and you know it's it's sort of impossible to like assign meaning to that I I felt very um I felt a lot of empathy with her in that moment 
Yeah, that does seem like a, a really key sequence, almost more in terms of like revelation than than uh, sort of like a narrative turning point. Although I guess in a way to the extent that uh, she sees what's going on there, it, it might be uh, a, a sort of a turning point for her consciousness as well as ours. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious too. So you mentioned that, you know, you had just watched the behind the scenes uh, feature on the DVD, on the uh, Blu-ray or, you know, whatever the Criterion Collection edition. Mm -hmm. And I just watched it as well. So we're both coming really fresh from that. What what were your kind of impressions of that? And I guess, do you see anything that kind of tied into your reading of the character from that second viewing? Um, I think it, A, you know, it really sets out that Delphine Seyrig is really like a forefront collaborator in this. Um, mm. The sort of like point of the juxtaposition of like the the scene uh, the the moments that are shown in um Autour de Jean Dielman which is like around Jean Dielman um it's these conversations between Delphine and Chantal where Delphine is really like pushing Chantal to um articulate uh her vision for the film and for the character specifically um and there's an you know an age gap there Chantal Ackerman Ackerman shot this when she was 25 oh, she looks so young too so young oh in that documentary <laughs> i know and um delphine was um i think around 45 and she had done she had done a number of films at this point including like last year at marion bad she was like a very seasoned actress who i think uh particularly had a lot of experience behind the camera you know in front of the camera as it were um and the behind the scenes really shows this kind of like push and pull. And I think you can tell that Delphine is really on board with the project, but is pushing Chantal as an artist occasionally in this sort of passive aggressive way. Um, and it really reminded me of something else that I had read um, about Chantal Ackerman. Um, I think I, I, I read this quote from her after watching News from Home, which I sort of needed a little bit of help to understand the relationship between like mothers and daughters is like so fraught and mm -hmm. I didn't quite know what to make of that movie specifically and Chantal's relationship with her mother but she at one point said that uh something to the effect of her um her films were less informed by her identity as a lesbian or her identity as um, a Jewish woman, you know, the, the children of Holocaust survivors, um, and much more informed by her identity as a daughter. Mm. Um, and her relationship with her mother was really like at the forefront of a lot of her projects. And I think I saw a little bit of that, like mommy mm. issues, like push wow. and pull in that. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I don't want to project much further onto that, but I, that 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 was what struck me in watching those interactions. Did you watch the documentary uh, or the excerpts that they have on there of her interviews with her mom? Um, no, I know that she did that project uh, with her mom shortly before her mom passed away. Yeah. I don't think I've watched them in full. It's it's yeah, I haven't I, I haven't seen that whole documentary, but they have some I think they're just excerpts on the on the uh, disc. And they were absolutely fascinating. I mean, in a, in a number of ways. And it, it's interesting to kind of, uh, 
I guess, you know, you, you're getting a certain glimpse, a certain filtered glimpse into that relationship through this. I guess the way that she shot it was, um, you know, she had the camera set up and she was talking to the mother and then prompting her like, well, when you say this, make sure you repeat the question because they're going to cut my voice out. And then I guess they decided not to cut her voice out because they thought that whoever was uh, programming it, because I think it was done for TV, was mm-hmm. um, that just thought that their their dynamic was really interesting. And uh, yeah, it would be interesting, I guess, to read a little more about that, about their relationship, because the impression you get from this is of very different people with different life experiences, but a sort of a warmth between them. And, um, you know, I would imagine it was probably more more complicated than that. But uh, that that's kind of like the the vibe that you get there. And uh, it's interesting, too, that she kind of the the documentary actually ends, I think, with Chantal out of the room and her mother sort of giving her these compliments that she didn't, you know, not not that she's sort of cold in the in the interview, but but with her out of the room, she's saying all these things about how proud she is of her and all that. And it's sort of touching. And I actually was sort of. it's it's funny, the literal last thing I did, you know, I watched that documentary with Delphine uh, Sayrig and the uh, and Chantal Ackerman on set um, right before. But while I was sending out the Zoom call, like emailing the link, I just kind of took a look at Chantal Ackerman's uh, Wikipedia page because I remember that she died a few years ago. I couldn't remember. I, I thought it was like more recent. I saw it was 2015 and that it was suicide and it was mm-hmm. she was depressed. It was soon after her mother um, had passed away and it was like, oh, like it was a little bit of whiplash, you know, because you're watching these films and she seems all the interviews, she seems so vivacious and so, uh, um, you know, uh, energetic and, and kind of joyful in a way. And it's like, I don't know, I haven't quite processed it yet, to be honest, that I just kind of got or was reminded because I'm sure I knew that at the time because I was, you know, following film news and stuff in 2015. But um finding that out now after kind of going through this whole backlog of all these uh, documentaries and stuff about her and, and, and kind of hearing that it's, it's interesting. And it actually, in a weird way, it kind of rhymes with Jean Dielman in the sense that when I was watching that film and to bring it back to that question of the narrators and your relationship to what you're seeing, I was very conscious of the extent to which we weren't quite um, you know, inside of Jean Dielman's consciousness that we were sort of forced to read it from outside and kind of understand her through her gestures and through the things that she does rather than any kind of articulation of what she's thinking. And it was interesting to, you know, watch all these uh, interviews with Chantal Ackerman and uh, where, where she's very forthcoming in a lot of ways and she seems very present and, and revealing and kind of unguarded. But then to get this information at the end of like, okay, and here's what you weren't seeing about that in a way as well. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have much more to say about that. It just was something very striking to kind of enter into this conversation with, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I remember and I, and I, I hope I'm not like misquoting here. I mm. think I remember her sister saying, um, you know, drawing, drawing a real line between the death of her mother and Chantal's mm. suicide in the sense that they were so close Mm. um, that Chantal's life in a certain sense revolved around her mother um, and that loss um, 
you know, in some way being insurmountable, which is obviously very, very sad. She was an incredible talent. I, you know, would would love to to have her with us today. Um, yeah, it, it's it's very, very sad, but I think that like there's um a depth to that relationship that we can sort of glimpse on screen um but we it's it's almost impossible to fathom sort of the depth of it and there's something else too about that interview with the mother that uh that resonates in that exact same way which is again this is excerpts so i'm i you know if there's a full documentary i'm sure it's much longer than this but but the excerpts they have on the disc which is what i've seen it's like a 26 minute uh, presentation or something like that. And something like I'm 17, 18 minutes in the mother's been talking about all of this stuff um, really just like sort of, again, like, you, you know, you can see the thread to uh, the connection to Jean Dielman, why they include this on the, uh, on the disc, but she's talking about sort of mundane everyday things. And, 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 you know, there's something very charming about the way she talks about her daughter's like extremely avant-garde films in this sort of almost like provincial way, like, oh, you know, the neighbor went and saw it and thought, oh, that was interesting. And, and, uh, you know, the, the, but, but they liked it and all this sort of stuff. Like, it's, it's just an interesting sort of juxtaposition that you get there from the mother. And after all of that, suddenly it just sort of turns to, um, I, I can't remember what brings it up, but Chantal says something about, well, your experience growing up was different because of the war or something. And then her mother just casually talks about how she was like, you know, a victim of a genocide where she would march out of a camp every morning and know when she came back, a bunch of people would be dead. And she did this for years when she was, I don't know, a teenager or twenties or something. And it's like, and then she goes on and starts talking again about, you know, going out with friends in the late sixties and, and just sort of like that ordinary, and it, it, it just brings to mind something that I've noticed a lot in like, it's not so much in American films, um, but like European films from the 60s and 70s, particularly how the war is this thing that everybody, certainly middle, every middle-aged person experienced. And uh, in one sense, it's very mundane and that it's it's just a part of their life, like anything else. And in another sense, it's this sort of extraordinary fact that is always kind of there underneath the surface, behind the scenes. And you even get a little bit of that in Jean Dielman itself to bring it back to this film where she's talking about, you know, meeting her husband uh, because uh, I, I think he was, a I don't know, was he American in the film or Canadian? Um, Might have been Canadian. Because I know her sister married a Canadian and moved to Canada. And there's sort yeah. of an implication that like they both met their husbands when the 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 soldiers kind of marched in and liberated them. Um, so so you know you get a little glimpse of that even in the film. But I think particularly the fact that she was the daughter of like a Holocaust survivor, I think adds another interesting layer to this film and to her kind of portrait of an ordinary life with something sort of dark and terrifying uh kind of uh, flowing beneath it yeah no that's a that's a really good point um and it, it it is so interesting because it's not 
um, the war is not like front and center mm. center in the film by by any means. But I think uh, I think you're right on the mark that like the time that it was made and the context in which it was made, you know, obviously the adult audience and um, any adult kind of in that age range would have had personal experience with the war. Um, and I think it makes a lot of sense that it would sort of, that that might be the, the way to live with it or to process it. Um, and I don't know if like the rage at the center of Jean Dielman can fully be attributed to the war by any means, but I think um, there's certainly something there. Yeah, the mother actually says at some point uh, in a way, again, that relates directly to Jean Dielman that, you know, because they're talking about the differences between them, between mother and daughter. And she says, like, well, you know, the order was an attempt, like she actually says it explicitly. She's like, that was basically, in a way, our, our my my need for order and and predictability came from the war because you would, like I said, you know, march out of the camp not knowing what was going to happen that day. It was complete. There was no um there was no security whatsoever. You never knew what was going to happen. Anything could happen. It was completely horrifying and threatening and dangerous every waking moment and so like when we came out of that of course we wanted everything to be very predictable and in it everything in its place mm -hmm. um and, and and all of that so as we're talking about this the mother and the daughter and her relationship to her mom and their closeness it makes me think of the relationship we're shown in the film really the only relationship we're shown in the film um, of, of Jean with her son, which, as you mentioned, is kind of cold. He's kind of an oddball. They have these conversations. Well, they, they really don't have many conversations. They have one, which is just sort of him talking about his like sexual anxieties in, in a very awkward way mm -hmm. that I feel like any, any uh, son who watches this is going to cringe a little <laughs> inwardly watching him have this, this conversation with his mother. But it's also sort of a sincere attempt of him to kind of connect or something and and it happens in the midst of her own kind of very um sexually uh influenced let's say we'll get to that in a minute but um you know her own kind of awakening and and confusion that she's in the midst of so thinking about Chantal Ackerman's own relationship to her mother I I find it fascinating that she has a parent-child relationship in this film and that she makes it a son and a mother and that also they have, it seems, you know, from the very, the little I know, uh, it seems like much less of a, of a comfortable or, or deep connection in a way than uh, her and her own mother, which is just a very interesting decision. I, I almost wonder in a weird way if there's some sort of like, autobiography in a way, you know, in sort of like a, like a subtle way. Cause again, I think, as you said, she was very close to her mother, but maybe that maybe this is an expression of like her own anxieties and, and feelings about uh, her relationship with her mom. And, and at this point, I think, you know, we talked about news from home where it's these letters from her mother kind of juxtaposed with her own very different life in New York not to get too psychoanalytical, but was there a sense of like guilt and like uh, our lives are so far apart at this point that that kind of fed into this film? 
I don't know. It's just, it's, it's a very interesting lens to look at it through, I think. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple of things that sort of occur to me, like juxtaposing those two relationships. And like, one is I think the sun is sort of a stand in for the dead husband. In That's some a great way. point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think this film would have worked if Jean Dillman had a living husband. I think that like mm. the son occupies that role in a, in a way, especially because um, she is her, her schedule, her days uh, revolve around serving him to a certain extent, making things easier for him. I think like one of the scenes that really struck me the second time around is when, um, when she doesn't meet him at the door and he walks into the kitchen to find her. And then they walk back to like, the the like coat closet so that she can take his coat from him like there's something there's a there's a lack of appreciation for her domestic labor that i think is like very palpable um this sort of like invisible labor that a lot of like men take for granted and i think at the same time sort of like thinking about um my own relationship with my mother a lot of like you know, a lot of my friends are also eldest daughters and like eldest daughter syndrome is um, it's a it, I could go on about it for a while, but the relationship between a mother and daughter like at that age, I think would be so much more fraught. I think it would be impossible to have that distance Mm -hmm. um to leave her as this sort of isolated character because even if you um as a teenage girl don't get along with your mother there is a sense that you are being um groomed or prepared to um fulfill that same role mm -hmm. uh to learn to be subservient to men in a certain way um even growing up in a relatively like progressive like 90s early 2000s household um there just does for a lot of women come a time at which like your mother starts teaching you how to be how to how to fulfill this role um and that's like a really fraught like really um really like visceral like strange relationship at that age um and it would certainly be interesting to see Jean Dielman with a daughter, but I don't think that we would get this sort of like the cold, the isolation. Um, I, yeah, I don't I don't think it would be the same movie with a daughter. Yeah, definitely not. And and, and I, I think in a way it works having the son there because you're right, like he does kind of he, he's kind of a replacement for the husband in a weird way, but a very insufficient one like he's he's as a patriarch he's like very pathetic like even mm -hmm. that idea of him like making her walk him back to the coat rack and take off his coat for him like it's a very it, it, it's like a mutually demeaning <laughs> kind yes. of gesture like <laughs> in a way that it wouldn't be with a husband even though you might find it like it would almost be more threatening in a way if it's like come mm -hmm. here you're not there take my coat off like the son doing it is kind of like oh you just feel embarrassed for both <laughs> you know um, yeah it's very like infantilizing exactly yeah yeah and and it, it's i i think 
you're right because it creates that kind of a gap that's there that kind of feeds into her uh, complete isolation at the end of the film. Like I think the only other um, woman that she uh, interacts with in the film, if I'm not mistaken, is uh, the the woman who comes and brings her the baby, who apparently is played by Chantal Ackerman and totally off screen. Like we only hear her voice. So it's like that. The, other than that, she is, um, you know, she she doesn't really have any figure like a daughter who she can kind of, you know, how as you said, however fraught, kind of bond with in a way, and it leaves her more more alone at the end of this film, which is where she really needs to be dramatically for it to kind of go in the direction it goes in. Yeah, and I think. Um, I think Sylvain, the son, is also at an age where he is learning to see women in these categories. Mother, desirable woman, you know, he's starting to create a distance between himself and his mother or himself and women um, that is also, you know, creating this distance in their relationship, uh, which is obviously that tension is sort of like um, heightened by the fact that like, I I think we all assume that he doesn't know that she's doing sex work. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would I would definitely assume that. Uh which which also so uh, actually before we get to that cuz that's I have a practical kind of question about that but a- another practical question I had was in the uh making of documentary uh, Chantal Ackerman mentions at some point well she had her her husband lived here so she would have like a second pillow or something. And the reason I bring that up is I had kind of assumed at some point that she was living in a different apartment than she had lived in with mm. her husband because the son sleeps on a fold out couch. So like what happened to his room? Um, I don't know. I, I, I will say aesthetically, I think that works really well to have him almost as like a guest in this house, you know? Yeah. He doesn't have does like make a space of his own. Yeah. Like what, what is i guess what's what is this what is the background on that i don't know do you, did you have any thoughts on that like um, did you assume that this was a different place than she than than sort of the family home had been i think i assumed that this was the same as the family home it would be interesting if it wasn't and there was like a downsize after his mm-hmm. death yeah i think like regardless we're not seeing a lot of um mementos of the the father the husband so um you know even if they had lived there as a family his presence has definitely been wiped from the Mm. from the apartment yeah and i guess it's interesting too when i think about the documentary i think her exact words are she had a husband so she wouldn't have one pillow so it doesn't exactly say that they lived, you know, maybe it's almost like a force of habit thing or something. But yeah, that, that actually provides a good pivot to the second practical question, which is, is the is the fact that she's doing sex work during the afternoon, early evening, like a entirely economic consideration? Uh, I mean, I mean, I definitely have my thoughts on that, but I guess I'd be curious to hear yours first. Um. It does seem very transactional. I think that like maybe part of like the uh, um, enigma of Jean Dielman is like uh, how she doesn't look like a sex worker. Mm. She doesn't act the way that we would expect a sex worker. 
um, to act. She really doesn't, um, she doesn't like perform like flirting or like coquettishness. It's very transactional. It's very physical. Um, it's very restrained. It's very clinical almost, um, which is really interesting and is maybe why I've noticed that some people when they see the movie for the first time, they don't catch that she is doing sex work. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an interesting question. I mean, I knew going in, so it, it was sort of a foregone conclusion, but when would you have realized watching the film, not knowing that? I don't know. Yeah. I, uh, you've got to, you know, one of the things that I love about this movie is it doesn't spoon feed you uh, anything. I was, I was telling my friend I was going to be doing this podcast and she was like, oh, maybe I'll watch John Dealman tomorrow while I'm doing like X, Y, Z. And I was like, no, you like really need to, this is like a full attention. Like, even if you speak Belgian French, this is a full attention movie. Although it would be interesting to be actually doing the same tasks that she was doing while watching it roughly, you know, like, okay, I'm going to watch this while I cook and stuff. And then be have like a weird, almost like out of body experience as you're like, watching the character on screen doing the same things as you in like the same amount of time. <laughs> yeah, actually that reminds me there's um this is this is like not super relevant so we can circle back to it later perhaps but I've been like uh reading or like watching like interviews a lot about um just sort of the way that this sounds so black mirror but like attention emotional processing cell phones like why cell phones aren't good for doing any of those things um and why david lynch mentions this in his book uh catching the the big fish the idea that like doing a rote physical activity is actually like really good for your Mm. subconscious it like gives your subconscious like space to roam and i don't think that i don't think that this movie is like playing with that at all because it was so normal at the time that you would just be cooking dinner or whatever and not be multitasking but it is um interesting that that is so removed from our current experience of just doing household tasks like she's having a whole internal dialogue in her head Mm. as she's doing this like this is the time that like your brain is processing things you are like this is really like a like a critical time for the brain in a lot of ways if you're doing something like rote and physical um it really like frees up your mind to think differently that is a great point and i mean the contrast of course with the you know current moment is uh, often we have our phones playing something while we're doing that now Um, she's totally uh, undistracted in a way, which means she can distract herself with other things perhaps. Um, but you know, there isn't, she doesn't. And and I mean, even at that time you could have had the TV playing. I don't know that there, I don't think she has a TV, does she? Cause there's only the radio that they play in this film. Yeah. It's just the radio that they use for like a set Mm. amount of time, but there is still sort of like a shift from when the routine is like going well. Um, Specifically, like Delphine is like not giving you a lot in that performance. We yep. can see that this is sort of like a a sweet spot, a sort of blankness almost. And as the routine gets disrupted, um, there's more and more sort of like simmering underneath. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I found I think one of the reasons 
it would be interesting. I, I don't know. I'd be interested to see how I would have, um, what I would have gotten from this film, let's say 10 years ago, if I had watched it when I thought I did, because I feel like at this point in my life, for whatever reason, I have like much more of like a ritualized life. Like I could almost relate to this film in some ways, like, okay, mm -hmm. now it's the time for this. And now you do this and now click each thing sort of clicks into place. And uh, there, there's a sort of a comfort in that. And I guess, uh, so, so for me, the moment that the film shifted, that I noticed a shift, and I would almost analogize it in a weird way to uh, what we talked about with Twin Peaks, with Twin Peaks, The Return, where there's that moment where Cooper flashes back to Laura whispering to him, and then we see mm -hmm. him walk out of the curtain toward uh, Leland, and he's got this sort of look on his face that to me is different from anything that came before. And from that moment on, he's almost a different character. Um, and the moment like that in this film to me is where she comes out with the second client. And we never see her in the bedroom until the final, or I guess, second to last mm -hmm. scene in the movie. So this is like the one thing that's an ellipsis. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, there, obviously there are a lot of ellipsis because we go through three days and three hours. So there's a lot that's cut out, but the most notable thing is what actually, you know, is going on in that bedroom. So we're, we're not privy to it, but as I recall, when she greets the client, it's very similar to the first one, uh, you know, just sort of formal, take the hat or the coat or whatever, lead them to the bedroom. But then when she comes out, there's just something different about her, something sort of unsettled. And I was kind of wondering, and I'm like, well, you know, it, it, was this like a unusual experience for her? Did she? And I'm like, I don't know, maybe that's too obvious or something. So then I'm watching the interviews on the disc and Chantal Eggerman comes right out and says, oh, this was the first orgasm she ever had in her life. And that was basically what set her on her course. I was like, okay, I'm so used to David Lynch, like not saying anything that that was kind of like a shock to hear the director saying, oh no, this is, this is what I had in mind, even though I don't tell you it in the film, which I thought was, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, startling in a way. No, that's so interesting. Cause I know that like the, the big, like, visual clue and I had not put it together like that um I think I I missed that when I was like watching the behind the scenes um is like her hair is messed up and she's mm -hmm. a bit absent-minded and like that's when she burns the potatoes because she doesn't go yeah. back to turn off the burner and that's like what starts everything but it is yeah that's very interesting that it's it's pleasure that wakes her up in a way if you want to put it like that versus um sort of the the frustration of like disrupting that routine I also found it um the routine I found that interesting because a lot of like current mental health stuff is based around habits and like mm. uh that book like Atomic Habits which I haven't read and like I'm sure it's very helpful but it's like I don't know I on its face it doesn't it, it doesn't feel like a solution. Do you get what I mean? It feels like a band-aid to be yeah, like, well, like a coping develop mechanism. these habits. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure there's like a more sophisticated way to go about like cultivating habits that, that's going to make you mentally well or productive or whatever. But it does feel like it's a band-aid for the essential problem of like living a dissatisfying existence. 
Yeah, I think the probably the best case scenario you could make for habit or, um, well, I guess there would be two. One would be you know looking at it strictly as habit, strictly as mental health, and kind of uh, settling you, giving you a sense of order or whatever is using that then as a platform for something else. Like, okay, now you've you've gotten your stability. What else? you know, how else can you self-realize or whatever? And I guess another way to look at it, and this is, this is sort of the way that, that uh, Ackerman described this, I guess, in some of the interviews is that she saw these actions as kind of rituals that were actually Mm -hmm. connected by like several degrees of removed to Jewish rituals to like explicitly religious rituals. Mm -hmm. Cause she said like her grandparents or basically like older relatives would do these things in the household like with a specifically religious context and then her mother and her aunts once the grandparents died they were like okay we're done with that like we're not religious we're not going to follow that but their own like sort of mundane domestic chores took on the character of the ritual so it was like almost like the ghost of the religious meaning was was kind of carried on somehow in that which I thought was extremely interesting, like yet another level to this movie that, you know, keeps keeps yielding riches the more and more you look at it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I don't know if I have a fully formed thought about this, but the um, wedding that I went to over the weekend was a uh, had both like a Hindu and Christian component. And I'd I'd never been to a Hindu wedding before, Mm. but it was um, really, really beautiful. And there was this. uh, emphasis on repetition and on ritual that I found very interesting. I found very moving because it was it was so um, involved. It it required you know both sets of parents, the bride and the groom, uh, the officiant. Um, it was a pretty stark contrast to the Christian ceremony that came uh, later. That was very. Um, focused around the officiant for for lack of a better word there was also some like call and response with like the audience at large or whatever but um there is something about ritual and it's um i think that it's very easy in the context of modernity to sort of like discard ritual or to see it as extraneous but there is something very um beautiful about that kind of like deliberate superfluous um almost aestheticized action yeah no absolutely and i mean that i i think that describes kind of the the appeal of this film on like just the literal like the texture of it you know beyond Mm -hmm. whatever concepts you you kind of think and it's something that always kind of frustrates me about the how people talk about like avant-garde films and experimental films in a way i always kind of see these films as being almost more emotional than like a strictly narrative film where there's you know a narrative film it's it's like i love narrative films they're often there's there's like a very interesting sort of yin and yang there between like the visceral and the cerebral but experimental films are almost like pure visceral uh, at mm-hmm. their best anyways you know like they're movies that just engage you engage your senses kind of directly 
And uh, I mean, this is actually a narrative film, which is interesting because again, one of these interviews, she says she wanted to make something that was like purely avant-garde and she kept kind of feeling guilty that narrative kept, (laughs) kept sneaking into it. Um, And, and, you know, this film has sort of interestingly melodramatic elements that it like interweaves with the sort of uh, Mm -hmm. avant-garde formal approach, but, you know, certainly in, in terms of, you know, using as a point of comparison, like a conventional narrative film, this is pretty far afield. And I feel like it rises or falls really on the strength, not of you being like, you know, and you kind of alluded to this in your introduction of like, haha, I'm going to go watch a three hour film and it's going to be boring, but it's going to be awesome because it's boring or something like that. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, no, like really it's going to rise or fall on whether you're actually literally engaged by what you're, you're watching at the moment. And uh, I, I think if you give yourself over to it, it it really does work on that fundamental level. I, I totally agree. And I think that's sort of the the irony of people saying that it's a deliberately boring film or what have you is there is something happening in every single shot. Delphine's carrying this movie. Obviously, like there's a whole formalist structure around it, but I think any lesser performance would greatly hamper this movie because we are watching this woman transform. And, you know, the, the, it, it, it's about a day and a half of setup, right? Before she has the second client and things start changing. But that's really necessary to understand uh, or to appreciate the changes that are about to come, right? And we, from that point forward, like there is a constant sort of growth and evolution um, that is being telegraphed. If you're just willing to like watch her face, her hands, her gestures, there is no extraneous shot in this entire movie. And I know that that sounds absurd because it's three hours and 21 <laughs> minutes. But like, if you are engaged, like the time flies by. I I promise it does. It is not a boring movie. There's also, so one of the shots that I feel like people have talked about is the moment where she quote unquote misses the button on her uh, robe or whatever. Yeah. Uh, to me, I felt like that moment in a weird way, like it, it felt intentional to like, just instinctively. I was like, well, she didn't miss it. Like how, you know, She's too meticulous to really miss it, even in her sort of frazzled state. I felt like it was like a it was a decision and one she almost couldn't explain to herself. Like, I don't feel like buttoning this button at this moment. You know, I'm just going yeah, to be or open. like like she didn't really feel like straightening it out. Like, oh, this exactly, is good enough. Yeah. And then looking down and being like, <laughs> oh, this looks terrible. Well, the... but then, isn't it this? It's I think it's the son who eventually like corrects her or something it's like yeah your button's undone or something and then it's like okay i guess i finally have to do this up but it it was like this weird it was like almost like a moment of like um i don't want to say self-determination because she's she is you know it's a bit of like a fuck it moment right yeah it's a it's a it felt to me like a moment almost like a moment of whimsy one of many departures from the ritual and some of them do feel like accidents um, when she, you know, the coffee's not quite right. When there's like something, fa- there's there's one moment where she's like cooking something or something in the kitchen, and like a cup like clatters down. It's like kind of jarring, 
Um, so there are moments like that, but that moment that I feel like a lot of people have pointed to with the button to me felt like that was almost a moment of like freedom <laughs> in a weird way. Yeah. You know, I think the moment that uh, from the, the that deviates from the rituals that I think of is the moment when she's peeling the potatoes. She's burned the potatoes. She has to like go out and get more potatoes. It's it's very uh, it goes against her whole regimented thing because she has to like get the attention of the shopkeeper and all of that and she's losing time the entire time that she does this but we get to see her peeled potatoes we'd seen her do it earlier she was very fast very efficient you know she had um, a client coming or what have you something that was sort of um determining the time that she had to peel these potatoes and the second time she's varying the speeds you can see that she's sort of like why am I doing this? Why do I have to do this? Why am I doing this so slowly? It's fascinating and there is no dialogue. It is so engaging and there's no dialogue. And if you can just be there in that moment, it is as riveting as any other piece of cinema. One of the things that I noticed from the documentary that we you know, both watched beforehand was not just sort of the kind of interesting power dynamic between uh, say Reagan and Ackerman, uh, but also their kind of different perspectives on what, you know, what they wanted or needed from this character. So the three quotes that I wrote down were uh, how this was Delphine Sayrig saying, how can I play her if I don't know her secrets? And then uh, two quotes from Chantal Ackerman. One was, I don't want any psycho psychologizing. And the other one was, it's simply the feeling I get from what you did, which was her responding when, uh, you know, Delphine was pressing, pressing her again for some kind of, uh, you know, you know, the classic actor's question, what's my motivation? <laughs> and she just sort of struggling with answering it and just answering more in like almost like sort of formalist visceral terms of like, well, it's it's kind of what I get, what I get from it, you know, but that that kind of little bit of a, a I think a good natured tug of war between them was fascinating to watch because that was something I think that as a viewer, you kind of experience watching the film, you know, these questions of like, there, there's all of these moments where you're sort of wondering what she's thinking. And then moments where you're just sort of absorbed in the gestures and uh, maybe you're, you're almost cast back on yourself. Like I found myself thinking a lot uh, watching these scenes of like, you know, maybe my own life in a way more than John D. Elman's. Like it's, it's a weird sort of, um, it, it the film plays in very interesting ways, I, I guess, with the question of viewer identification. But I just found that dynamic between the two of them uh, utterly fascinating. So I I don't know. I, I'd be curious to hear what you thought about all of that as well. Yeah, I think like the the way that I read it more was um, that Delphine was sort of coaching Chantal. Um, Specifically, it, it seemed like Delphine Seyrig was really on board with Chantal Ackerman's uh, vision. And she just wanted Chantal to be able to clarify or not mm -hmm. even clarify. I don't really think there was that much confusion. I think she just wanted Chantal Ackerman to 
articulate. And I think that she was sort of mm. bringing a lot of her Delphine's uh, previous experience uh, in front of the camera to the fore and kind of talking about her um, process as an actor. And I found it, it was very, um, I found it very maternal um, in a funny sort of way. Um, but yeah, I really, I really saw it more through that lens of like um, Delphine being both sort of the actor who was trying to work within the director's vision and also being the more seasoned um, artist in this collaboration. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And I think I, I would probably clarify when I say, you know, like a good natured tug of war, I think ultimately what it results in is not like one side winning so much as like a synthesis. Um, mm. And I think you see that in the moment where she kind of keeps pressing her and pressing her. And finally, Chantel says something like, uh, well, uh, this is, you know, this is her moment of of relaxation or something like yeah. that. And she says, ah, see, so there is a reason I got, you know. You, you there there was something there you just your way of processing it wasn't to articulate the motivation um but but there was a motivation essentially um, yeah i think it's it's very like delphine sarah is very much knows what chantal mm. is writing Good or point. like yeah. understands it and she's really like coaching chantal ackerman like from a behind the scenes perspective i think like Delphine Seyrig probably could have taken the script and just like kept all of her little notes and revelations to herself and like given a great performance. But I think coming out of this, um, you know, my sort of uh, conjecture here would be that, you know, Chantal might be a stronger director, more able to like articulate her vision, specifically with actors, because I think at this point she had done... Um, Jetu Il El, which is a, a film that she stars in sort mm. of as a version of herself um, with a few other actors. So I think that like this feels very, um, yeah, mentor-like in a way. Yeah, and the, there's uh, there's another film on the on the Criterion disc, which is like her first film, which is a kind of a fac fascinating juxtaposition with uh with Jean Delman and uh let me see if I can I, Sot, Sot Laville I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly but mm -hmm. it's basically like a chaotic version a chaotic yet weirdly orderly version of like Jean Delman where it's her like you know playing again the the character on film and she's like racing around the room like making a mess of everything basically but in a very uh -huh. like mannered way of like as if she's doing some sort of cleaning or organizing ritual but the result is to like throw everything on the floor and like pour water on it and like sweep it around and it's got this uh, crazy soundtrack that just sounds like her making like you know uh, noises into the microphone or something and so it, it's kind of an interesting um, comparison point and again it's it's her on the screen I know she was in uh, the name is escaping me now but like I think probably one of her most notable films before this, where it's like panning around the room and uh, she's in the frame. Like, I think maybe that's not her. I'm sorry. No, that's a, 
that's a pregnant woman. So I guess it isn't her. So never mind that. But, you know, the, the, she hadn't, like you said, she hadn't, she certainly hadn't been working with like professional uh, veteran actresses up to this point. So it, it is definitely like kind of a new, a new thing there. I do think there, there does at times seem to be some genuine frustration on mm -hmm. Delphine Sayrig's part. Like when she talks about frustration mixed with admiration, which is very mm -hmm. interesting because she's like, you know, you, you've written such a detailed script. Like usually there's stuff left for me to fill in, but, and the, the, you know, it's almost at, 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 at those points, it's almost like a tug of war with herself where she's like, I kind of want to bring something, but I also don't want to upset this kind of beautiful thing that you've created where you seem to know what you want. And I, I want to give you that, but also like, I kind of want to know, my way into it, you know, and it is, it's, it's a fascinating portrait of collaboration and what that means in, you know, an auteur film. And I would, I would call in, in the real meaning of the word, not the sort of trivialized meaning where it just means somebody who controls every aspect of the film, which I don't think is, you know, a very interesting form of auteurism, but like in the, mm -hmm. in the sort of real meaning of the term of like this idea of, an individual voice finding its expression in this complicated industrial medium. It's certainly an auteur film. And it's also, as all films are a collaborative film. Mm -hmm. And so seeing that kind of um, tension with somebody who is like so young, fresh faced, like really getting their first, you know, baptism by fire in this medium, at least in a feature format uh, was just fascinating to watch. I thought. Yeah, and I think like sort of what might also be relevant here is like we have both um, Chantal Ackerman, who's like a young uh, lesbian. I would say she's like a little more, she's not a high femme lesbian, you know. Um, and we have Delphine Seyrig, who has played these sort of like very sexy, femme fatale roles. And there's, um, a point where she starts talking about in the in the documentary she talks a bit about sort of like her own um understanding of gender and like the way that uh gender mm. roles really like limit women and i think that she is coming at jean dillman from a very personal angle she like has a lot uh, she really i think brings a lot of herself to that performance um, I was really fascinated by the the point at which she said that, you know, he maybe Delphine had chosen um, to like lean into femininity in order to uh, as a sort of avenue to a better life because it was what was available to her. But she was saying, you know, in the year 1974, maybe this was shot because it came out in 75. She was saying, if I was 13 years old today, I don't know that I would have chosen mm. femininity necessarily, which is so interesting considering the roles that she'd played prior to this. Like last year at Marion Bad, she was a very like sexy feminine like film presence. And so I think that like she's bringing a very um, specific lens to Jean Dielman that Chantal Ackerman um understood but maybe um her inability to sort of like articulate it or her reticence to articulate it came from her own sort of like 
disconnect with these specific gender roles. It was maybe something that she had like seen in her mother, but didn't hadn't taken on for herself, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that is that's totally true, I think. Another interesting thing about the documentary, too, is that uh, you have, you know, you and you see it firsthand. It's like uh, almost all women crew and the two character the two characters you know, the two actual people who are like the central figures in the movie um in the documentary chantal akerman and uh and uh, delphine sayrig obviously both women but it's shot by uh sayrig's uh partner uh sammy frey um you know so not to get too essentialist about the gender roles but but it is interesting that it's like this exploration of um, you know, a, a female consciousness, uh, the film, you know, and then documented uh, by the man who is sort of silently, for the most part, uh, kind of observing this whole process. I, I don't know. I just thought that was another interesting layer to the whole thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually like looked up much about the identity of the um, person who shot the the behind the scenes so I think I assumed it was maybe a woman or I don't know but that's certainly there's a lot of interesting play with gender roles uh for as few men as there are in the film yeah oh yeah definitely um it's interesting too so like Sammy Frey he was I knew he was an actor in Band of Outsiders the the uh, Jean-Luc Godard film but I always like mix up the actor who he was. So I always think of him as being like the guy, um, the, the, like, I think it's like slightly shorter, slightly shorter, older guy, but he's actually the other one. So I don't know that that's meaningless, but <laughs> maybe <laughs> throw that out there in case, uh, you know, you've seen anyone has seen band of outsiders and, uh, associates that name with that movie. But yeah, he was, uh, kind of like a French new wave figure as well, I guess. And, uh, was on set. I was kind of surprised too, to see at the end, um, again, talking about filtering it through different people, it was edited by uh, Chantal Ackerman and um, another woman uh, in like 2010 or something like that. So I guess I, I don't know if it was like shown in another form, but the form that we see it in is, again, mediated, you know, not just by different people than the one who shot it, but like 25 years later as well. <laughs> or 35 years later, actually. Yeah. So yeah. that that's another, I always love that. I always love watching like the uh, blue velvet revisited is another example of that, where there was like a behind the scenes documentary about blue velvet. And this footage just kind of sat on a shelf for like 30 years and then was re-edited with like new contemporary music um, that just creates this like fascinating time capsule thing. So yeah, uh, in this case, they don't add anything to it, but just even the decisions of, what to show is is filtered through that yeah it's certainly very interesting that you know Chantal Ackerman was revisiting herself at such a young mm. like formative age uh as an adult in her career so I, I would like to also talk about the the sight and sound selection of this and call the implications the interesting relationships it has to other films but before we get to that I want to talk about the end of the movie um what was your I guess what was your take or your reaction to the end of this film where she murders the third client we see and uh, then the the final shot is her sort of sitting at, uh, I think, is, is it the living room table? 
yeah, where she sat before, table. yeah, where yeah. she sat before with her son, and this sort of light is filtered through. It's it's like a very evocative uh, shot, and she's kind of alone, and she's almost it. It's like she's agitated and at peace at the same time. That was my kind of gut reaction to it. But um, but what did you make of all of that? Uh, do you, I guess do you have particular thoughts on on any of the the, the sort of uh, climactic moments of the film? Um, I mean, it's very enigmatic. It's very opaque, I think, to a greater extent, even though a lot of the film or a lot of the, the performance, I I think going in the first time I was like vaguely aware that there was going to be the murder of a client. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they that the the appointment is over when mm. she stabs him with the scissors. Um, it really, it's not, it's not quite a crime of passion. It's mm. not. Yeah. Good point. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily is premeditated by any means, but I think there's like a bit of distance between uh, with that decision. You know, she has certainly time to like evaluate it. Um, and and still goes through with it. I mean, on the one hand, good for her. Uh, on the other, that last shot is so fascinating because like what that that moment has changed everything. And this is also the day that she had, you know, said to her son, like, feel free to come home early and like bring your friend that I don't really like. And like, maybe I'll give, you know, I'll, I'll prepare an after lunch snack or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's this weird cap on like all of these attempts to connect with others. It's this like very stark rejection. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to like know specifically what to make of it. Yeah. And I think also too the fact that we don't see the other two encounters, particularly the second, I mean, the first I think is mostly just, it's, it's very, it almost feels like expositional. It's like an older man. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is what she does. The second one obviously unsettled her in some way. And again, according to Chantal Ackerman, it was, it was, you know, as he said, that moment of passion of, of, of like pleasure and passion that she had that she was not used to that disrupted her ritual. But in the third encounter, we do see her kind of pushing him away at times. He's not responsive yes. at all. Like there's a very it's like a very um, not exactly ambiguous, but like there, there's like a very troubling aspect to it where it's like how much of this is her um awakening to something how much of it is something being forced upon her and the way those two things are are like tangled together i think complicates the ending as well and even complicates what we could understand of whatever happened in the second encounter that we don't see yeah i mean i think like with the with her sort of attempting to remove him from her body because it's sort of after he's finished and he's Mm -hmm. just like dead weight on top of her yeah it's he's treating her very much like an object and we do talk about that a lot like the objectification of women but this is a bit a bit uh i would say even more literal than that he Mm. doesn't 
there's no regard for her as a person. He really uh, doesn't treat her as a person. He's very also like slow to like get up and like leave the room. It's very much uh, he's he's almost sort of like basking in his pleasure. Uh, really like centering his own experience there. And I, I guess he is like a paying client or whatever, but um, it's very, I don't know. I got so frustrated watching him. I, I <laughs> like I said, good for her because that guy was very frustrating to watch. Well, it's also funny and, and or maybe not funny is the right word, but like ironic in a sense that, he's objectifying her he's totally absorbed in his own experience but the film it's pretty much completely disregards him like we never really yeah. even get a good look at him he's just like this body in the background that serves as like her kind of crucial narrative moment so there's i guess you know to the extent um that we would that, that that we would recognize that behavior in him there's a bit of like a poetic justice in that sense and in how the film treats him yeah, it's um I it's it's so interesting that like the you know, she has this experience where she experiences pleasure that sort of unsettles her, but it's the it it's this man experiencing his pleasure at her expense that is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um and it seems like most of her clients are repeat clients so mm -hmm. yeah. um I think it's almost safe to assume that she's gone through this with him before it's also like um in the in the behind the scenes um Delphine and Chantal are like talking about how they want to mm. play that scene um yeah that was fascinating cuz she was like I need more from this guy basically like yes. why is he acting totally like passive I need something else here yeah it's it's really again like there's no basis for comparison but i think that we can sort of intuit that jean dealman is maybe even like looking for her own pleasure in that moment she seems just like very restless like physically restless uh with this very like lethargic man on top of her yeah and then you know that final moment she's alone it's like in some ways it's it's like the most alone moment she's had in the film because she's usually doing something i mean there is the moment where she like they've talked about how like she loses an hour like she got up too early or something like that so she has this extra time and she doesn't know what to do with it and she's sort of restless but i feel like the final moment is a little different because it, it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem exactly like restlessness. It's it's like she's experiencing something in the moment in a way that mm -hmm. maybe she hasn't for the rest of the film. Uh, it, I mean, this is an, a very odd comparison to make, but it actually, in terms of where the film ends, it kind of made me think of There Will Be Blood, how it's like Daniel Plainview mm -hmm. just murders his rival and the film ends with him like, sitting there over the body it's like well what happens after this obviously he's going to be arrested he's going to go to jail or whatever but the film ends there and yeah. i, I kind of had that similar thought with john dealman it's like well obviously your son's going to come back something's something's going to happen like the body i assume is just i don't think she hid it somewhere it's sitting in the bedroom like this is kind of the end of her life but mm -hmm. it, it the film isn't as much interested in that as it is in 
what is she experiencing in this exact moment? Yeah, it is. Um, sorry, my cat is about to crawl over this keyboard. Um, it is, it's this point of no return, right? Where she can sort of, what, what options does she have? She's not going to hide this body before her son gets home. Uh, she can call the cops on herself. She can wait for her son to discover it. Um, it seems like it is sort of like um, a waiting game, like short of calling the cops on herself. Um, there's not much that she can do. Um, it does. It It's almost like li this limbo between her previous life and mm. this sort of like unknown presumable experience with the justice system that's about to begin and in a weird perverse way it feels like i said like you know almost like a moment of freedom and openness uh, in that limbo even though it doesn't seem to be heading anywhere good it's like and, and i guess that's the power and the freedom that a film has is it can kind of choose its ending in that way it can say you know, this is where we're going to leave you in that moment. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is asking the viewer to sort of sit with this decision and sort of like maybe imagine where Jean Dillman goes from there or sort of try to piece together uh, why things have unfolded the way that they have. But at the same time, it is, you know, one of the only moments of rest that she has in the entire film there are moments where she's waiting for something to happen and maybe to a certain extent that's what's happening here. But even that um, moment of relaxation that they're talking about in the behind the scenes, you know, she's just brushing her hair and she's doing it slowly to sort of prolong this like moment of solitude or what have you. But she is just like in constant motion or anticipating motion. Um, throughout the entire film and this is sort of the moment where she loses momentum mm. so uh, i guess to to kind of uh come to a you know prolonged conclusion here i'd like to discuss the film in terms of its uh elevation to the top of the sight and sound list kind of the discourse surrounding that i know for me personally certainly that was the impetus for uh for this podcast you know seeing that it was on the number one and having in the back of my mind that you know a good way to kind of close off a certain period of my online work would be look at this list of the greatest films of all time and discuss the ones that i hadn't discussed before and i i think that was also the moment where i realized i had this weird kind of black hole in my mind of like not just oh, I haven't seen the number one film on the site, but like, have I seen? Like, it, it took me until I watched it to really mm -hmm. be sure whether I'd seen this or not. And I think the what what kind of made me realize that was everyone seemed to have pretty strong opinions on whether or not it should, you know, be number one or whatever, and what the reason for that was. And I was thinking, well, what's my opinion? And that was kind of when I realized I was like, <laughs> I don't really have an opinion, but I've seen this movie, right? So I must have an opinion. And it was like, you know, now now that I've seen it and realized I hadn't seen it before, it's it's much more. It, all the pieces fall into place of why why I didn't have a strong opinion. But um, yeah, now that I have seen it, I feel like it's 
in a weird way, a surprisingly logical uh, choice. Like, I think for one thing, you know, if you're going to call something the greatest film of all time, I think beyond it just being great, it has, well, I wouldn't say it has to. It kind of makes sense that it has a certain weight to it. And this is a film that I think has that weight to it. Um, you know, and now that I actually have seen it, I can I can kind of recognize that and see, OK, yeah, this is in terms of what this is, there is like a, a gravity to it that feels commensurate with something like, you know, Citizen Kane. And, and actually, I find the connection between those two films kind of fascinating, but I'll punt on that for a moment. What was your uh, reaction to this uh, when, you know, this was elevated to the top of this list that they uh, reveal every 10 years or so, at least on the uh, critic side of the equation? Yeah, I mean, um, I rewatched it in theaters just this this past spring. So I saw it again um, okay. after the results had come out, which was sort of serendipitous. And Again, having really liked it the first time that I saw it um, alone, you know, streaming on my own TV, uh, seeing it in theaters and really having that like big screen experience, I think it was just so fitting for it to be at the top of the Sight and Sound Critics Poll because it's such a formalist triumph. Mm. Um, it's a story that could only be told on film. It's a, it's a story that utilizes film in such a specific and interesting way. I would say maybe like the one element uh, that you could say is like, I don't want to say missing because again, I think it's a masterpiece. Maybe it doesn't use sound to the fullest extent, but like that's sort of extraneous mm. because I think the thing that it does, it does a couple of things. One of which is it sort of exposes the framing of cinema. I do really like dynamic dynamic camera work. I love like uh, a close-up with a wide-angle lens. Like I, I love all of that. But when we see these sort of like static, really well-framed shots, these long tapes, it reminds you of like what the medium is what the form we're watching is. And I think uh, Michael Haneke, Funny Games, does that in a very similar way with like very gratuitous on-screen violence, which I find um, it's a very interesting juxtaposition there. Uh, Tarkovsky does some similar things. His, his camera's a bit more dynamic. He's known for the long takes, but he did say uh, famously that cinema is sculpting in time. And I think when we're talking about Tarkovsky, in that sense, we're really talking about like aesthetic images. We're talking about sort of like beauty. And I think what Jean Dielman does over the course of, of three hours and 21 minutes is sort of this like cumulative meaning uh, on these repeated images, right? I think I, I mentioned this before when we were talking um, on the Twin Peaks podcast about the difference between uh, the approach for one of the episodes in Neon Genesis Evangelion versus the way that that was handled in the Rebuild series, where in the original series, it's you know one full episode where Shinji, the main character, is sort of reckoning with the idea that he um, is being asked to destroy this there's so much evangelion stuff we're just gonna have to like assume that there's some basis of knowledge here but 
the character is sort of like reckoning with the idea that he is being asked to fight or destroy this um, thing that has a human being in it, right? That he knows is also like a child his age. And over the course of that episode, you know, like a full like 15 minutes out of the 20 or so, maybe even more than that, maybe it's the full 20 minutes. He is really like grappling with that fact specifically in the abstract, not knowing who it is. In the rebuild, the series that Hideaki Anno did a few years ago, it's four distinct films um, kind of retreading these same story beats uh, when they do that specific arc. Shinji knows from the start who is in the robot in that scene. And so it's a it's a much more intellectual reaction. We as the audience are able to say, oh, okay, he knows it's so-and-so. That means X, Y, Z. Like, we can just kind of keep moving forward. And watching it in the rebuild, uh, I remember thinking like, oh, this makes sense. It's very neat. I get it. Uh, but going back to that episode in the series, it's so much more emotional because that episode ends on him discovering the identity of the pilot, which is different from the rebuild. I'm really getting deep in the weeds here with Evangelion, but the point being the way that that meaning accumulates over time is so different from the instant intellectual realization. That is just that instant intellectual realization is just so abstract and it's so easy to like gloss over it. And I think that what Evangelion does to a huge extent and what um, Jean Dielman does is you are experiencing that realization and you are experiencing that um, cumulative meaning with these repeated images where every time you can sort of go back to the last two days or the last day and you can understand, okay, she peeled the potatoes like this before. She made the bed like this before. And you don't have to sort of be spoon-fed what that means, that now she's more hurried, she's more lethargic. Um, you're really, like, with her in that moment. And it makes for a much more, um, it's a much more, like, visceral personal experience if you're willing to, like, really be there and be present with it. Yeah, no, that's I, th I think that element of like sort of um, setup and then delivery in a weird way. There was a lot of discourse around this. I mean, there were there, I would say there were the two big kind of uh, critiques or reactions or defenses of the film were on the basis of, you know, is this like a. a some sort of like representational thing where because it's a female director now it's raised up to the top. Um, and then the other one was like, is this kind of like a perverse, like, you know, quote unquote film snob thing where we're picking the most like challenging film we can and, and, you know, using that. And I would say, you know, there's stuff to say about both of those critiques, but I think the latter one um, in a way, I think there are other films that would, sort of fit that that uh critique or that definition more like if if there was like uh i don't know i mean even something like say news from home you know like uh mm. some something that is almost more purely avant-garde and uh kind of leaves behind the dramatic kind of uh 
you know, the, the expectations of, of drama or even melodrama and, uh, and, and, and that kind of like uh, structure, but John Dielman does have that. Like it, it's, it presents it in a very unusual way, mm-hmm. but it gives us that sort of, it almost has like a three act structure. If you really want to push it that way. Um, you know, it has like this larger than life element to it. It has the unusual hook. Like she's not just a housewife or I guess a widow performing chores, but also, you know, has this secret life of prostitution and all of this. There's all these elements to it, which actually give it like a foot in that world of um, more like, you know, conventional quote unquote drama. So it's almost, I feel like that argument is almost um, better suited to if they had chosen something that was even more um, kind of on the margins of, of storytelling. This is, this is almost like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> in a weird, well, I guess that, I guess that would bring me to the comparison I wanted to make to Citizen Kane, which is. I think you you could draw like an interesting formal comparison in some ways. Like uh, this is almost like this film is like the logical fulfillment of like Andre Bazan's reading of Citizen Kane in the forties, where he was really focused on how the film uh, on how Orson Welles would like allow shots to play out and, you know, change, you know, move the characters around within the frame and, and, and have a sense of duration. And then he kind of carried that over into an appreciation of neorealism. And I think this, the, the film kind of evolves out of that. Obviously, though, Citizen Kane has way more multifaceted approaches than just the kind of duration effect of the long takes, um, whereas Jean Dielman, I think, is more strictly based within that, that format. So there is that. But to me, the more interesting connection is the sort of narrative um compatibility and uh, the formal discrepancy so like citizen kane as i mentioned it, it does have all these wildly varying approaches we have tons of different narrators it's like it's kind mm-hmm. of a smorgasbord of cinematic approaches and voices and all of that jean dielman is much more focused and yet they're both telling these stories of these characters who were kind of held at a distance from and we want to kind of know you know, what, what is this, uh, this sort of secret motivation that they have for whatever they've done. And so like, it, it just utterly fascinates me that even though they've now gone in this different direction, and I guess you could see Vertigo in some ways as like a kind of a pivot film between the two, certainly in gendered terms. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have Citizen Kane about this archetypal, like, you know, masculine patriarchal figure and then John G. Elman with like the, you know, the, the more conventional feminine figure and Vertigo in between is a film that switches its point of view at a certain point from the masculine to the feminine. So there, you know, that that's interesting, I guess, in and of itself, but the parallels between Citizen Kane and John D. Elman just fascinate me. Like, you know, the, both films are kind of like the exploration of like, what is their rosebud basically of this person. And then when you find it out, you still don't quite know who they are. Yeah, that's really interesting also. It just strikes me that I think um, in terms of Citizen Kane being sort of a portrait at a distance and Jean Dielman being a portrait at a distance, um, Citizen Kane does use um, a familiar literary device, the idea of seeing someone through the lens of multiple acquaintances and kind of seeing these different angles. Um, That's certainly something that 
had previously existed in literature and can exist in literature independent of film. And it's interesting if you if if you wrote Jean Dielman as a novel, I don't know that it would work because it's at such a distance. There's there's so little that is sort of like explicitly said. You could describe it in a very dry way, and I just don't think it would um, really add up to Delphine Seyrig's performance. But the other sort of interesting element that kind of flies in the face of this idea of John Dielman as sort of a formalist triumph is John Dielman really doesn't use montage. Sergei Eisenstein's um, theory of montage that we we see in like early Soviet films as well as sort of like throughout the history of film now, this idea that you can put two juxtaposing images together and the human brain sort of uh, makes a connection, makes meaning between those images. You see it like Evangelion has a ton of montages like that that are very abstract. Um, Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror has um, a lot of montages like that. And you also see like shopping montages, just sort of like time montages like that. Um, and it's it's interesting because I think that was sort of one of the first specifically cinematic devices that were identified montage. And it's very interesting that Jean Dielman doesn't use that. It is so specifically cinematic and yet it doesn't use many well-known cinematic devices. Yeah, I think the interesting thing too about that that question, what is this core cinematic identity? Is it montage? Is it, you know, the duration of recording? And of course, you know, it's it's both of those things in a way, but it, it actually makes me think of a comment on an earlier sight and sound list. I think it was, well, it was definitely 2012, where uh, David Thompson noted that the uh, man with a movie camera had risen like quite a bit on the list. And he kind of attributed that to younger viewers who were raised on like, you know, MTV and eventually YouTube, having just like more comfort with the kind of leaping around and, uh, you know, not having to be quite as expositional as like classical Hollywood filmmaking, let's say. And I think Jean Dielman kind of fits into that overall pattern as well, where over time as viewing habits shift some of the things that seemed more obscure or more marginal actually seem um, more widespread now. So in this case, that would apply to both the duration and also the kind of um, the, the like real time quality. So first of all, you know, people will binge watch television in a way that dwarfs what people used to think of as like ridiculous um, you know, uh, uh, film lengths, let's say. So like, you know, oh, this is, this movie's three or four hours. You can't expect people to sit still for that. And then people will sit still and watch like, you know, 14 episodes of some series. It's just in a row. Um, and then also in terms of the, like the on-screen, um, you know, the, the, the kind of observational quality of Jean Dielman. I mean, we're living in an age where people will watch live streams for hours on end of people just sitting in their homes, um, usually talking granted, like that's a, that's kind of a, uh, a feature of these, but still like there, there is something that shifted in viewer expectations 
where both time and like um what's the i don't know how i would describe the other quality but like the like the casualness the the sort of like almost like domesticity of what you're seeing um, mm-hmm. is no longer the issue that it once was. So so I find that kind of interesting too, is that yes, you could view this selection as a kind of a challenge to, uh, and I think people have framed it this way, well, I know people have framed it this way, is like a challenge to the very limited, uh, ever narrowing conception of like what you know, cinematic entertainment is. But if you look outside of feature film, you know, theatrical filmmaking, uh, it's actually viewing like viewer engagement and viewer expectations have actually broadened quite a bit. So I don't know. I, I, I find that kind of compelling as well. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting because like that is technically true, but I also think that that sort of viewing behavior, binge watching, um, the sort of like very uh, normal, unremarkable things that people are willing to watch on live stream. That's usually in the context of multitasking. That is a great point. <laughs> yeah, which I think like that's why I, I I don't think we were recording when I when I mentioned this, but I was talking to my friend about Jean Dielman, uh before we started recording this podcast. And she was like, oh, maybe I'll watch it while I'm doing, we, we did talk about this, X, Y, Z. And it's just not a movie that you can do that with. Even if you speak Belgian French and you're catching all of the lines, like you need to be watching every frame in order to really get the full um, impact of the film, which that is kind of a challenge. That's why I think it was a bit, um, that's why I think I got more out of it watching it in theaters as much as I did enjoy watching it at home. And I think that, um, I don't know, I'm really trying to like cut down on multitasking when I watch films and I, I watch TV. Um, even binge watching, I do find there's something, I don't know, there's that sort of like sentiment that you see going around where people are like, oh, I don't have the attention span to like watch films, but I'll sit down and watch like six hours of TV or whatever. But that's also because like it's being told to you in very discreet Mm, intervals and TV is much more used to as a medium um, reiterating plot points. You know, you can argue that maybe some of that has changed with streaming. I actually don't think that's the case that much. But like because of commercial breaks, things airing uh, weeks apart, like TV is much more accustomed to sort of like reminding you what's happening or like what you need to know, uh, you know, based on previous episodes. Yeah, that's a great uh, counterpoint. So I would say what we've gained in like uh, flexibility or uh you know, openness to different ways of watching things, we've lost an absorption. And mm-hmm. I think really lost an absorption because, you know, people aren't even willing to bring what they used to bring to a two hour movie at this point. So that, yeah, that is, that is definitely a complicating factor in that. Uh, I would say, I guess, 
you know, Jean Delman is kind of interesting in a way of like, a, it's almost like a what if, like uh, in the same way that man with a movie camera might be, where it's like, what if we had these new viewing habits, but could somehow couple it with absorption into like a, a, a single phenomenon. So, um, you know, if there's any hope for, <laughs> for audiovisual mediums, it, it would be that, I guess, but you know, the past decade or so hasn't been too promising in that regard. Yeah, unfortunately, I think the average shot length for most mainstream movies is mere seconds at this point. Yeah, I, I will say I have zero. I mean, in terms of like movies being like narrative feature filmmaking, I think lost like 10 years ago, I used to kind of read and even write my own kind of uh, thoughts on like this idea of like, is cinema dying? Is it headed? And at this point, I think it's a done deal. I think what we thought of as the movies is pretty much dead as like a mass medium. Um, my interest is, or my, uh, you know, my, my hope is maybe from sort of tangential mediums, something else can arise. But uh, as yet, that seems kind of unfulfilled. So I don't know. Yeah. And I mean, at the same time, there's such a huge uh, archive library of films that were made even prior to the year 2000 that are all, uh, not all, but very many of them are worth watching. And I think I find that that's uh, what I'm drawn to now, um, going back and watching these older films, especially like I think one of the great pleasures of coming to some of these older classic iconic films later is um, watching something like recently I watched like the good, the bad and the ugly, or I had the same experience with watching persona and just the pieces sort of like clicking into place and seeing how it relates to uh, all of these other movies that you love or how it influenced all of these other movies that came after. It's a deeply satisfying experience. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, the the silver lining of the past two decades has been, although even this now kind of has its, uh, you know, the sense that it's it's we're past the prime. But this idea of like access to film history, I think, you know, greatly increased and is now at the moment sort of under threat of uh, being kind of put behind various walls once again. But uh I don't know. You, you kind of hope, I mean, we're getting a little off topic here, but you, you just kind of hope that once the cat's let out of the bag, that it's, it's hard to completely put it back in again. Um, because certainly like the experience of the 21st century so far has been, you know, if it's out there, you can, you know, if it exists, you can find a way to it easier than you could at any time in the past. And it's, it's really hard to just kind of, come up with a way to say no that's no longer the case back to the way it used to be again yeah yeah certainly and i think the one it's just so interesting that like we've had there has the internet at all has like brought about such a revolution in terms of like the information that's available and i was saying this to you as kind of like an aside about um you know freemium technology on the internet and kind of coming to an end uh with that now we're also seeing like streamers just pull things, uh, things that they had exclusive licensing rights to. And that tends to be a lot more with 
recent releases, but now that a lot of uh, media never gets physical releases, it's almost like a a walking back of that open access that the internet brought. Obviously, yeah. there are still ways to see these things. And it, I think, is becoming apparent that archivists who are sort of working outside of the law are actually doing very important work because otherwise some of these things are really actually going to be scrubbed from the internet and become lost media because there was never a physical release. Yeah, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it, you know, there's a lot going on right now in terms of like the way that streaming is going to have to be retooled, both mm-hmm. in terms of like the quote unquote business model uh, that the conglomerates are touting, which we're already seeing that being revised um, at a large scale. But it's that that model and the model that they're proposing or sort of like moving towards is not sustainable for the artists who actually mm-hmm. produce the content. Um, so I think we are going to see, I hope we're going to see some drastic changes uh, to the way that we've been consuming media that preserves that level of like wide open access and also um, makes filmmaking a viable livable career for artists in the future yeah so actually that brings us to an interesting end point i think which is you know we're obviously recording this at the time of the writer's strike and the actor's strike and and all of the like technological issues that we've been talking about are central features in that ai and streaming rights and uh, all of that you mentioned though uh, in relation to that that you know, one of the things that fascinated you about John Dielman, which we haven't, I don't think, really addressed too in depth yet. And so I think it could be an interesting point to conclude on is the question of labor and how the film depicts that. So I guess I just wanted to kind of pass the baton to you on that and, and hear what you had to say about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that John Dielman is about labor in sort of two senses, both of which are sort of invisible forms of feminine labor. Um, one is the household labor, and that's really what we see Jean Dielman occupy a lot of her time with. And it is sort of amazing that she is always in motion. You know, the potatoes are boiling while she's seeing a client, or she is sort of multitasking in a very like pre internet way um, in order to get all of this done. Again, because she doesn't have a partner maintaining the domestic household her son is out of the house and he's also you know he's a child but he's also completely unaware of the labor that goes into maintaining their household and like having dinner on the table for him when he gets home um and i think that making that labor visible and making visible all of the mental work that goes into that labor that's a lot of like what women talk about when it when they talk about like the mental load of like maintaining the domestic sphere having to sort of like direct uh like a male partner or your children in order to get some help maintaining the household you're still like the only one holding that mental knowledge of like what needs to be done when how it has to be done 
Um, and directing that is a form of labor in and of itself. And then at the same time, we see, you know, we talked about the sex work being very transactional. And I think that that, you know, it, it, it really brings to the forefront the idea of like sex work as labor. And I think that we can look at that and say like, she's not doing enough or there's something weird or off about the way that she's approaching sex work because she's not sort of like performing. She's not giving the girlfriend experience, you know, but it, it really does contextualize what she's doing as transactional, as a form of labor, as like a give and take that maybe doesn't involve, um, you know, a certain emotional attention from her. And I don't know that the film is like, has a thesis on that necessarily, but I can imagine that 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 viewers and male viewers specifically might have a very strong reaction to how sex work is portrayed uh, in Jean Dielman. Well, it's interesting you point out she doesn't give the girlfriend experience in some ways, at least in sort of the like, uh, you know, intro and outro to the to the encounter, basically, she she sort of provides the wife experience in a weird way. Like she's, yeah. it's very like form, like, okay, here you are back from like, like, you know, not sort of nondescript casual in the way that like a wife would, you know, greet her husband coming back from work and go off. And, and it definitely makes me wonder about the, the marriage to her husband. So, I mean, in Chantal Ackerman's own words, obviously she wasn't sexually satisfied at all with her marriage, but she does tell that story to her son, which I find interesting that, you know, she was being pressured to marry the husband and she was kind of resistant. And as soon as his business went under and they were like, actually don't marry him, that's when she decided to. So there was, there was always like a little bit of a, of a, of something, a, a little bit of an aspect of resistance to her, uh, even going back to her youth, you know, the, in this sort of like the, the off-screen story that we don't see of, of Jean Dielman, the, the, you know, the prequel yeah. version, basically. But, it, but yeah, it does, I, I find it does that also, interesting. It does also, that, that story specifically does also sort of suggest that she didn't see her marriage or like love as transactional. And to be frank, like a lot of women in the 20th century did see marriage that way because that was what marriage was. Mm -hmm. that was like how women were able to live that was just simply a practical concern uh because you weren't allowed to work outside of the household you know in the U.S. women weren't allowed to have their own checking accounts or their own credit cards until like pretty late into the 20th century so the fact that she saw her marriage at least in the beginning as separate from labor or financial stability is really interesting when you contrast it with, um, you know, her widowed life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's amazing for all that the movie gives us in its three hours. And I guess in a way, this is, this is something it gives us as well. There's so much left to kind of imagine or ponder or think about uh, both of what happens before and after what we see. I mean, this is literally only three days and, you know, boiled down to three hours of this character's life. And uh, yeah, I guess that, that that's kind of a good note to leave on this question of like, you know, 
who was Jean Dielman, not just during the time we're seeing her, but, but what led to that, what created this person and where is it going to lead? And uh, we're, we're kind of left to sit with that. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very present movie, which again is just, it's a, it's a very interesting formalist construct that I think really deserves its spot at the top of the sight and sound list. Well, that's definitely a good place to leave it off. Um, why don't you let the listeners know, you know, where they can, uh, I guess, find you at this point and uh, you know, what's in store for you as well. And uh uh, you know, I will mention before we get to that too. Definitely check out our conversation we had on uh, the Twin Peaks conversations recently. Uh, that podcast uh, that I put up on uh, YouTube and Patreon with Ashley and Matt as well, the co-host of uh, Twin Peaks Peaks. Because if you enjoyed this and you're a Twin Peaks fan, I think you'll definitely enjoy that as well. But uh, what else did you want to, uh, I guess, share with the listeners, Ashley? Um, you know, there are just a couple of places where you can find me on the internet now. Um, like Sean Dealman, I'm trying to live my life in the present. That's a bad joke, but uh, you can find me on Serialized and Letterboxd under Ashley Brandt, um, A-S-H-L-E-Y-B-R-A-N-D-T. Or for the full friendship experience, you can follow my cats on Instagram. Uh, their account is asuka.kauru, A-S-U-K-A uh, period K-A-W-O-R-U. Sounds good. All right. And thank you again for, for coming on here. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed revisiting this film. And that concludes this episode. Next week, we continue the Sight and Sound miniseries with another film that I saw for the first time, another film from the top 10 critics list, and another film directed by a female filmmaker that jumped way up on the list from 2012. So... I guess I'll play the clip and let you see if you can figure out what it is. But uh, if you can't figure out from the audio, you'll know in a week when it comes out on the feed. So stay tuned. Actually, what am I talking about? I put out an episode last week where I said all the upcoming episodes. This is Claire Denise Beautrevi. Like a Safeway car rolling through the street. Santa avait séduit son monde. Il a tiré les regards. Il cache bien son jeu. On regarde à ce que tu dis, Gabi. 